morning. We'll be in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 this morning. And so uh, as I thought about it, uh, the whole idea of mercy is on display, but it's when mercy runs out. And so I can think about uh, when mercy has run out in my household. All right, so uh, I can remember this particular trip. We were on vacation. We're, we're on our way to Colorado. Uh, my girls are in the back bickering over something. And you know, you tell them, hey, y'all, stop. Hey, y'all, cut it out. And then literally I remember the moment I became my dad when I said, don't make me pull this car over, right? Have you ever said that? And then this eerie feeling came over me like, wow, I am my father's son, you know? And then... I pulled the car over. And me and my girls spent some quality time together. Um, I don't know whether you're pro-spanking, anti-spanking. I know my kids were anti-spanking that day. And I was pro-spanking and it all worked out somehow. But this morning we're gonna see in Revelation chapter 15, final judgment. When mercy finally runs out. If you've been following this narrative, if, if you haven't, man, I wanna encourage you to go back to the beginning. We started this in September and begin listening to these messages because what we see, uh, the arc of the story is this picture of finality, but, but the picture is of final salvation, final judgment, and then this final restoration when God finally makes all things new. And so we've seen the, these breaks in the narrative as God shows his mercy and says, Listen, there's still a chance. Listen, there's still an opportunity. And, and so uh, I just wanna catch you up just over the last few chapters. Uh, I look at, at, at um, Revelation as a, a series of snapshots, right? Um, it's not sequential. So when you look, uh, scholars have tried to put this in sequential fashion, showing us where everything is. You can Google it and it will show you these timelines, but I don't believe that that's how it was written at all. I believe that there's this imagery and he's jumping all over the place from past to present to future. And we saw uh, in chapter nine, uh, since the end of chapter nine, we paused from the trumpet judgments in chapter 10, we see John taking the scroll that we saw in, in, in the throne room of heaven and now it's become bite-sized and he eats it. And it's this whole picture of Jesus saying, listen, own everything that I've told you, devour it, let it seep into who you are because I want you to share it with the rest of the world. Chapter 11, there were these two witnesses and it was this beautiful picture of the gospel. Do you remember the two witnesses? There was death, there was resurrection, there was ascension. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Then in chapter 12, we saw that apocalyptic Christmas card. Do you remember it? When we think about Christmas, we think about the baby born in the manger and oh, you know, silent night. When in reality, it says that the woman was giving birth and as the baby was coming out of the womb, there was a dragon waiting to devour the child. Merry Christmas, right? And so we saw it was just a little bit crazy. And, and we see that Satan from eternity past, we saw it in Genesis 3 that he's been trying to destroy what God wants to do. But all the way back before creation, there was a rebellion in heaven when he was trying to usurp God's authority and he and a third of all the angels were cast out of heaven. So it's been going on since eternity past. 
Chapter 13, we saw the false trinity. Remember the dragon is Satan, the beast out of the seas, the antichrist, the beast that comes out of the earth is a false prophet and they were mimicking the trinity. And remember what we said about that? We said, listen, the enemy, he is not particularly creative because he is created, he's not a creator. And because he's not a creator, he's really got nothing. In fact, we'll see in the passage today, the enemy actually only has the power that God gives him. It's not God versus Satan in this epic battle. No, God's in complete control all the time. Which by the way, that means that if you have said yes to Jesus, it means that the God of the universe is living inside of you, which means this, the enemy actually only has the power that you give him. And so he's false. He's the author of lies, the author of deception, and he's got nothing. He's not particularly creative. He just knows your trigger and he keeps pushing you into the same areas over and over and over again. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Do you ever get frustrated that you keep doing the same stupid things over and over again? I'm saying that about myself. So uh, chapter 13, we see this uh, fake trinity, but then beginning of chapter 14, Right when we look and we see the narrative and it seems like, wow, the enemy's taking ground, he's moving. He takes John into a new vision where Jesus is standing on Mount Zion on the hill of victory and he's standing with all of his peeps and he's showing us a picture that Jesus has already won. That right in the midst of us seeing, it seems like the enemy is taking ground, that there is Jesus along with the people of God already living in victory. And at the end of 14, we see imagery of the enemies of God being crushed by a wine press, being threshed like wheat. He's saying judgment is coming. So a couple of thoughts. Um, first, um, I heard Matt Chandler say recently about the book of Revelation, and I wanna remind you of this because I've said it, just not this eloquently, that it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So we've gotta remember when we're reading the book of Revelation, this book was written to a certain group of people at a certain period in time, and we'll see it's never more on display than chapter 15 and 16 this morning. And so as you think about that, so many times, I mean, think about it, we're like, you know, if you listen to end time scholars, it's like, wait, are the locust Apache helicopters? No, it's not the point. Is the vaccine the chip? Do I not take it because it's the mark of the beast? No, it's not the point. Guys, we gotta get real about the fact that, that, that the whole book of Revelation is summed up in this. Suffering is a part of the spiritual life, but it's worth it because Jesus made all things right through the cross and he will get the final victory in the end. Amen. That's it. So, so we gotta quit looking at it as some cosmic cheat code trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to us today? Well, let's look at what it meant to them. And when we see what it meant to them, it'll make a little more sense in what it should mean to us. Remember the ark, the narrative of the entire Bible was written in the context of suffering. But, but none greater than the New Testament. I mean, John is living imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote this letter. When he's copying down this vision that he got from Jesus, he's living in slavery. 
and all of his friends were dead, had died brutal deaths because they followed Jesus. That's the backdrop. So I think we gotta just kind of reality check. We're living in abundance. We're the richest, most decadent uh, nation on the planet. Reality check. You don't know what suffering is. When the shake machine's broken at McDonald's, that's inconvenient. That's not suffering. So let me walk that back a little bit. Man, we, we all have tough things that happen, right? And sometimes life seems almost unlivable because of our pain. But we just sing about it, right? The mountains and the valleys, Jesus is the same. His mercies are new when every morning, every morning his mercy is new. So that's the first thing. Man, it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. And secondly, um, this was not written in sequential fashion. And so just because we're moving toward the end of the book doesn't mean that it was written just like this, right? In fact, we've seen it jump all over the place, haven't we? That, that he goes from eternity past to the future to the present, what they were currently experiencing. And here's why that's important. Because as we get into the bold judgments this morning, here's um, what's interesting, they look a whole lot like the trumpet judgments. And so here's my question. What if there aren't 21 judgments? What if there are just some judgments that are taking place? And what if the bowl judgments are just a retelling of the trumpet judgments from a different vantage point? I don't know if that's the case or not, but you know, when we look at it, it's pretty eerily similar. So we're gonna see the plagues from Exodus. We're going all the way back to Egypt and then we're gonna move forward and we're gonna see these bold judgments. But just a couple of chapters before, we see that a lot of this has already been lived out in some way. It's fascinating, right? Does anybody else's head hurt right now? Yeah, I mean, to try to figure this out, here's what we have to focus on. Jesus, don't get caught up trying to figure this all out. Just focus on Jesus. Mm. Ooh, that's my introduction. All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 15, we're starting in verse one. Pack a lunch. Um, I, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the, last, with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. Okay, so we've shifted back and forth from earthly vantage point to heavenly vantage point. Okay, so if you read through the narrative, sometimes uh, John is on earth and he sees certain things. Sometimes he's in heaven looking down like when the seal judgments are going out. And now he says, I looked up into heaven. So now it's like he's on earth, but he's looking up into heaven. And so the vantage point just keeps changing on us. But he says there's seven angels, seven plagues. Seven is the number of completeness. But it's interesting that these aren't called seven judgments, they're called seven plagues. Now, this is gonna be important as we walk through the passage. So um, what would that connotation be to Jewish believers that were reading this? Man, Jewish history, they're always looking back. 
They're always uh, really looking back at what had happened. In fact, when we think about what, is the, what are the big celebrations that they practiced every year? Passover. They were celebrating when they were delivered from the hands of the Egyptians as the angel of death passed over and they had to put the blood of an unblemished lamb on the doorpost as provision for them. Which by the way, jump forward. When did that happen again? When Jesus, his blood spilled on the cross, it was fulfillment of the Passover in the Old Testament. Old covenant, new covenant. And yet it's all covenant. Again, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all working together, but he's, he's taking us back to Egypt. What's the one thing that we know for sure? What does it say at the end of verse one? It's last because with them, God's wrath is what? Completed, say it, completed. What does completed mean? Finished, finished, it's done. That at the end of this event, his judgment's done. So what does that say to you and me? It's saying that mercy's over. Mercy time is over. As early as Revelation 14, 6, we saw this angel flying in midair. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So as early as the last chapter, there's an angel flying around that's proclaiming the gospel. What does that say to you and me? One last time, God is saying there's still time. My mercy is not extinguished. I'm still trying to provide a way. You know what that sounds like? It sounds consistently like the God that sent prophets over hundreds of years in the Old Testament over and over saying, turn back to me, love me, repent, turn from your sin, think in a new way about your sin. That's what the word repentance means. Think in a new way about your sin because if you don't, man, you're headed toward a train wreck. You're headed into slavery. And here, he's doing the same thing. This is not a vengeful God. This is a merciful God. That in the middle uh, of pouring out his judgment, we keep seeing it. Listen, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. And guess what? Here in 15.1, it's too late, yo. Verse two. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and over the image and over the number of its name. So who are these people? First of all, the sea of glass, if you go back to chapter four, it was introduced, which means he's looking into the very throne room of heaven. And there's this beautiful sea of glass. It, says it looks like it's on fire, which means colors are jumping off of it. And it says there are those standing victoriously who had been victorious over the beast and those who had the number of his name. What does that mean? Well, if you look at uh, in, in Revelation uh, chapter, I believe it's two, uh, when he's talking about the church at Smyrna, and he says, those who are faithful to the end, even to the death, I will give a crown of what? Victory. These are those who have died for the cause of Christ. And it says that they're actually living in victory over the beast. Who else do we know that died and conquered death in the process? 
man, they're mirroring their master Jesus. That they have said, yes, I'm following you to the end, even to the death. And then look at what happens. They held out harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant, Moses and of the lamb. Okay, so they sang the song of Moses and of the lamb. The lamb is who? Jesus, say it, Jesus, y'all awake, all right? Uh, they, they sang the song of Moses and sang the song of Jesus, deliverer number one and deliverer number two. So, so this is a song of deliverance. This is a song that's like, woo! This is Braveheart, y'all. Freedom! They're singing it at the top of their lungs. Know this. This is the language of heaven. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelation. They just break out into song all the time. It's like a musical, right? They're just constantly singing and they're singing the song of deliverance. What are they saying? Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So every one of those phrases are coming from the Old Testament. I'm not gonna read them right now, but they're drawn from Psalm 111, verses two and three, Deuteronomy 32, four, Jeremiah 10, seven, Psalm 86, nine, Psalm 96, two. You can look those up later if you want to. Um, but it's this beautiful picture of what? Completion. The song they were singing back then, they're singing in the end. And we should still be singing today. This is the song of heaven, y'all. And I've said this before, but let me just double down on it. If you're bored, if you, if you like hang out in the lobby, which will be harder than the 945 service, but if you're hanging out, just like, man, I gotta wait till the worship is over so I can come in and get some good old teaching, you're missing the best part of the service because that's training for heaven, right? I mean, that's why we're here. We're here to worship Jesus and we worship him through song. We worship him through hearing. We worship him through obeying what we hear. But man, if you don't like worship, I just don't know what you're gonna do in heaven. That's what we were made for. Jesus says, listen, if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. How embarrassing would that be? Be in heaven and some rock next to you is like, oh. <laughs> that would freak a brother out, wouldn't it? All right, verse five. Then I heard the angel say, I'm sorry, wrong chapter. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Okay, so this is getting cool. So uh, we first start out that he talks about seven plagues, then he talks about singing the, the song of Moses, and now he says that he sees the temple, the tabernacle of the ceremonial law. So what is that? The, ta the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the tabernacle of the covenant law. So the tabernacle of the covenant law, you gotta go all the way back to Exodus. So they had the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody remember what that is? That's not the boat, but uh, it, it is, it is uh, this housing. It probably looks somewhat like a coffin and it carried the 10 commandments. It carried the rod of Aaron, which represented their rescue. The 10 commandments represented the law that they were to follow and a jar of manna, which represented their provision when they were in the desert. And so they carried this around and they took it into battle 
along with them. So this represented the presence of God. And so this tabernacle of the covenant law was also known as the tent of meeting. And, and they built this structure to house the presence of God. That's where Moses went to meet with God. So if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse one through three, and the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month, place the ark of the, of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with the curtain. So you see, that's a picture of the covenant law. If you look over in Numbers chapter nine, it says, on, on the day, the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up, the cloud covered it from evening till morning. The cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. And that is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. And so um, we see this picture uh, of the tent of the covenant law. And it said that, that the presence of God uh, would descend in a cloud like it was on fire. And it said that when that happened, they knew that it was time for them to camp. When the cloud would lift, they would go out. It's a picture of God's leading of God speaking and them obeying. So verse five, verse six, it says out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Uh, they were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave them seven angels that gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So think about this. You remember Moses, he would go meet with God. And when he came out, he would have to do what? He'd have to wear a veil because the glory of God was so on him that people couldn't look directly in the face or they would die. Here's what I wonder. If this represents the temple of God, when you walk out of here this morning, does your face shine so bright that people can't look at it? They're like, whoa, what is going on with you? Have you been, ever been around those people? Have you ever been around those people that follow Jesus so closely that you're like, you're really, either really inspired to be around them or you hide from them? Right? I've been in both camps, by the way. Um, uh, in fact, I would say that uh, most of my professional Christian existence, I would hide from those people because I knew if I had more than a 30-second encounter with them, they were gonna see right through me. And so I would just hide because I didn't want them to see who I really was. But you know those people, right? Those people who just have the glow of Jesus on them. And look at the, the, the uh, angels, when they came out, clean, shining linen, they wore golden sashes around their chest. Who does that remind us of? Jesus, right? The flowing white robe, the golden sash. They came out of the tabernacle looking like Jesus. Can you say that about yourself? Do you come out of the tabernacle looking like Jesus? Let me, let me kind of reset it for you. 
Every morning, do you get in the secret place with Jesus? And remember, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, which means that when you said yes to Jesus, you're now a housing for, for, the, for the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of you. So here's the question. As you're in intimacy with Jesus in the secret place, is it changing your life so much that when you get up and walk away, you look different? Would your wife say that? Like, hmm, you look like Jesus today in a good way. Do your kids say that? Do your coworkers say that? Do your neighbors say that? Like, are you so submitted to the way of Jesus that you're headed into the tabernacle going, I wanna look like Jesus on the other side of this? Are you hitting it with your five-minute devotional so you can say you did it and get along with your day? Might need to aim a little higher, right? It says when they came out of the temple, man, shining linen, golden sashes, and 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 it says that they were handed the the bowls of God's wrath. Yikes! What what did that look like? What did it look like to to be carrying the wrath of God in these bowls? And then it says that the temple was filled with smoke and no one was allowed in there until it had been carried out. What does that say? Hey, don't come back into my temple until you're living in obedience. You know, for a lot of us, we're, we're coming to God day after day, week after week, asking him the same questions over and over. And you know what? I think God looks at you and he's like, yeah, we'll get to that. Obey what you already know. Live in obedience to what you already know. When you come into my temple, come in every week saying, man, thank you, God, that I've been able to live in obedience and become more like you. See, it's the difference between living in the religion of Christianity and living in an intimate relationship with Jesus. They sound a lot alike, but they couldn't be more different. Because you see, religion is about rules and regulations and being good enough and, and earning your keep. A relationship with Jesus is like, ah, oh, Jesus, I just wanna be as much like you as I can. And it's my desire to be in your presence. It's my desire for my face to glow for the world to see. It's my desire to walk out in shining linen and a golden sash. I just wanna look like Jesus. For some of you right now, you're like, yeah, I'm out because you know how you drive, right? You know how you treat your waitresses. You know how frustrated you get at customer service people. Hello, right? I mean, I think for a lot of us, we wanna look like Jesus, but do we wanna look like Jesus at all costs? Are we willing to walk in obedience no matter what? Because. What did he do here? He locked the temple until it was completed. Because his mercy's been extinguished. He's done. So do you see this thread? Plagues, song of Moses, tent of the covenant law, the cloud of God's glory. Isaiah 6, 
the year Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seated on his throne, the train of his robe filled the temple, and then these four living creatures were flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, which they're doing in Revelation chapter four. And it says that when it did that in Isaiah 6, 4, it says that the doorpost shook and the temple was filled with what? Smoke. It's happening right here. Why do you think Jesus is telling John these things because he knows that his people can relate. His people know this story. His people know this narrative. And unfortunately for a lot of us, we spend way too much time focused on the New Testament. And we've forgotten that we have actually been grafted into the family of God through a Jewish carpenter named Jesus. Do you realize that, that in our, the very essence of our faith is rooted in Judaism? We're just completed because we understand Jesus, which means we need to know everything before Matthew. It's important to who we are. And it tells a very consistent story, a story of love, God in pursuit of his people and his mercy over and over and over again. And now here in the end, his mercy is extinguished. We move into chapter 16, verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on earth. Loud voice from the temple, who is that? It's God on his throne. God on his throne, he's calling out. He speaks and judgment commences. Remember this, God has the final word on all judgment. He has the final word. It's not God versus Satan. The, the, the end is not in doubt. God speaks, judgment commences. So what we're about to see is this correlation with both the Egyptian plagues and the trumpet judgments. And, and again, I just wonder if, if this imagery, if we look at it, maybe it's, it's kind of reshaping our vantage point of, of, of everything that we've tried to fit this narrative of Revelation into. So verse two, look at the first bowl. It says, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So the first bowl, sores broke out. That's the sixth plague of Egypt. Look at Exodus chapter nine. It says this, it will, uh, it will become fine dust over the whole of Egypt and festering bulls will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering bulls broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the bulls that were on them and on all the Egyptians. So these boils break out, has to be very painful. Zechariah talked about this in Zechariah 4.12. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike against all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. Ugh. Yeah, this is Zechariah, who is, uh, we've seen prophecy throughout the book of Revelation, foretelling what is to come. So look at verse three, the second bowl. 
The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. So that was the first plague of Egypt. Exodus 7, 19, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch it. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canal, over the ponds and reservoirs. They will be turned to blood. Blood will be everywhere, even in vessels of wood and stone. Man, water turns to blood, just like it happened in Egypt. They knew this narrative, and now it's happening again. But it also happened with the second trumpet in Revelation chapter 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So we see that this, is, this event is, is the same but worse. When we get to the bowl judgment, it says every sea creature died. But we see this thread of continuity from the plagues to the trumpets to the bowls. Look at verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So this, again, it's the plague that was poured out, that first plague that was poured out, but the first, the third trumpet in Revelation chapter 8, verse 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet in a great storm, a great star, rather, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on, the third, on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. The waters turned bitter. Many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And so now the rivers and streams, their water supply is turned off. It's the same thing that's happening here, but it goes from a third to all of it. It's ramped up. The fourth bowl, if you look down at verse eight and nine, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So the sun scorched the people, set them on fire. The fourth trumpet, by the way, in Revelation 8, 12, says the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And so what we see is it's having to do with the sun. One time God turns off and now he turns it on and he turns it on superpower and they're scorched and it sets them on fire. But here's what's important to note there. They didn't repent, but they cursed God. See, judgment is here because they refused to repent. Do you know that judgment falls on a person because they refuse to turn to another way? What does that tell you? That when God pours out judgment, when God, really when God pours out natural consequences of your actions, it's not on him, it's on you. Your, your failure to think in a new way about your sin is what drives you to this. 
And for a lot of us, man, you're in intense pain. Some of it is natural suffering. Suffering is a part of life, but some of it is self-inflicted. And you continue to hold on to it saying, I've got a better way. I've got a better plan. And he's saying, okay, well, we'll see how that works out for you. It doesn't end well. It's a common theme, Revelation chapter nine, verse 20 and 21. It says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. We saw this at the end of chapter nine, at the end of the trumpet judgments. It says they did not repent. Now we're seeing the same thing here, that, that God's wrath is being poured out and they continue to shake their fist and they curse God. Now I would say there's probably a very slim chance that people in the room this morning are shaking your fist and cursing God. But do you know we do the same thing with our actions when he calls us into something and we continue to go our own way? That we're politely cursing God? We're politely saying, uh, thank you, I've got my own way. And in our own way, we are cursing him saying, you're not smart enough to handle the affairs of my life. You're not good enough to, to tell me what to do. I got this. And I want you to know that that will lead you, that way of thinking will lead you directly to the crash site. It doesn't work. There's not a person in human history that have lived outside of the plan of will that God has for them and it's worked out well. It just hadn't happened. Okay, look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. How desperate does it have to get when you gnaw your tongue out of your mouth? And still a refusal to say, okay, God, enough. I surrender. No, they continue to say, ah, mm, mm. They can't even talk. They're talking like this. <laughs> They're gnawing through their tongues in agony. So again, this, this idea of darkness, we see it in Exodus 10, 21 and 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for these days. Jesus said it himself in Mark 13, 24, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We saw it in the trumpet judgments as well. I don't know if this is a physical darkness an economic darkness, a spiritual darkness. All we know is that it's dark and God causes it to happen. And they refuse to repent. 
So this is what I thought about these last two bowls. It shows the depravity of man. You know, Proverbs 14, 12, uh, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is what? Destruction, right? The, the, the way the culture tells you to work things out will not work things out. It will just make things worse. And yet over and over and over again, remember Jesus said it, wide is the path that leads directly to destruction and many will find it. Narrow is the path that leads to life and few will find it. Which means in a room like this, very, very few by percentage are gonna find it. It means that most of us in the room are headed down a very broad path and it will not end well for you. And it's a refusal to bow your knee, a refusal to surrender. Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. See, there's joy in revelry, slaughtering of the cattle, killing of the sheep, eating of the meat, drinking the wine. But listen to this. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. You know what that is in modern day terms? YOLO. That's what the kids are saying, right? You only live once. Live it up, yo. Eat, drink, and be merry. I heard an amen out there or something. All right. (laughs) Somebody's like, yeah. Security. (laughs) YOLO, live it up. Is that not what the culture tells you? Man, do you. Chase your truth. There is no such thing as your truth. There is the truth and your opinion. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if anything that you're doing does not line up with the truth of the way of Jesus, it is not truth, it's deception. And we've got to begin to move in that direction, realizing that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Man, that's a reality for some of you. When there's a greater life to be lived. So here's the point. We are currently living in the age of God's mercy, but it won't always be this way. And here's the thing. We don't know when mercy runs out. You don't know. In fact, we'll see it in just a minute through the words of Jesus. Because you're sitting here today, you're living under the mercy of God. Because you woke up this morning, you breathed in, you breathed out. That's God's mercy on your life. And he says to you today, listen, my mercy is on your life, but it won't always be that way. It won't always be that way. Well, when is it gonna change? Glad you asked. I have no idea. But it could be now. Okay, we're good. Could be now. It could be any moment. You're not guaranteed anything. You are not owed anything. You have been given the mercy of God because you're sitting in here this morning. You are hearing the truth of God's word and now you're responsible for it. And listen, this is not a hellfire and damnation message, by the way. You get to choose. This is your choice. You get to choose whether you wanna live in the freedom that God offers you or do you. 
So don't be mad at God because you choose your own way and then things don't work out. That's not on God. Some of you are still mad at God over something that happened that was completely in your control. You chose the wrong way and now you're holding God hostage because of it. That is not God. For a lot of you, you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, but first, dot, dot, dot. Right, hey, listen, I'm all into Jesus. I'll follow Jesus, but first I gotta get that promotion, right? So I gotta, I gotta give more time to my job and less to my family, but I'm gonna follow Jesus at some point. Man, I'm gonna follow Jesus, but I'm so unhappy in my marriage and this girl makes me happy over here. So I'll follow Jesus, but I need to work all this out first. Man, I'm gonna follow you, Jesus. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. But I've got this addiction that I'm really not willing to, to do away with. The, the, the draw of porn is too strong in my life. So yeah, I'm gonna follow you, but it's gonna be a little bit later because I gotta get this under control first. Know this, all of those things right there, they're not the problem. They're a symptom of the problem. The problem is your heart's not surrendered to Jesus. So just be real about it. Because what you're really saying is, Jesus, I don't wanna follow you because I got some other things that are a higher priority. It's the difference between the religion of Christianity and following Jesus. Don't lull yourself to sleep. Okay, let's finish this up. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king's of the east. Okay, so here's what's interesting. If you look back in Revelation 9, 14, said to the sixth angels, so the sixth trumpet, release the four angels who are, beyond, who are bound at the great river, what? Euphrates. So we've got the sixth trumpet speaks of the Euphrates. Now the sixth bowl speaks of the Euphrates. But, it, but in, in, in the bowl, it's dried up to create an opportunity for the enemies of God to gather. And why are they gathering? Well, look, verse 13. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of the Lord God Almighty. Look at verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. There came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So it was a tremendous quake. Okay, so let me, let me back up just a little bit. So what do we see? We said three impure spirits were sent out to deceive these kings and draw them in under the control of God. Now these demonic spirits under the control of God are drawing the enemy in, drawing them into a place called Armageddon. Anybody heard Armageddon? Yeah, great movie with Bruce Willis. So, uh, so think about it. They're in this valley, the Valley of Medigo of Heartmageddon, 
and they're being drawn in for this final battle. I don't know if this is literal or figurative, but here's what I know. God is gonna get his right here, right now. And he's drawing his enemies into a final battle and it will be short and sweet. But I skipped over this one thing that I want you to see. Verse 13. Anytime you see red letters, those are the words of Jesus. And I love that Jesus gives us a wink here. In the middle of this, where he's like about to pour it out, look at, look at what Jesus says. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Okay, so what is he saying? Jesus is like, I come like a thief, which means nobody knows when I'm coming back, consistent with what he said in chapter one, right? You gotta stay ready so you don't gotta get ready, right? So we're staying in a state of alertment, alert, alertness, alertment, that's not a word. Uh, uh, but, but what does he say here? I come like a thief, stay alert, and don't get caught with your pants down, Right? Think about it, for a lot of us, we've been lulled to sleep and Jesus is gonna return and we're gonna be, uh, if you were here when Cade spoke a few weeks ago, we're gonna be penguining across the room, right? Getting caught with your pants down. This is Acts chapter 19, when the seven sons of Sceva, do you remember that story? They were casting out demons in the name of Jesus and they, they go to this one house where there's a demon and they're gonna go cast him out. And they said, hey, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And the demon spoke back and he said, I know Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? And it says that he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. He beat the pants off of them. For a lot of us, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight in the spiritual life. And he's saying, listen, I have armed you with everything that you need for a life of godliness. But I promise you, if you've given yourself to religion, rules and regulations, and you're not submitted to being daily in the presence of Jesus, allowing him to form, transform, reform who you are, man, you're not in good position. You gotta wake up and recognize he's calling you to the tent of meeting. He's calling you into that place, into intimacy with him so you can glow like Moses, so that you can glow like the angels. Okay, this is my favorite part of the passage. Here's where we end. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, what? It is done. It is done. Where have we heard that before? In John 19, 30, Jesus stretched out his arms and said, what? It is done. It is finished. The word there is tetelestai. And tetelestai is this accounting term that means paid in full. It means you on your best day didn't have what it took. And when you didn't have what it took, Jesus took it on the cross. It means that you no longer have to try. You no longer have to strive. You no longer have to try to work it all out. No, you just bow your knee to Jesus and say, thank you. You see, Jesus is the mercy of God. Jesus is the one that makes it all make sense. You couldn't make sense of it if you wanted to. 
You need to trust Jesus. He is the one that opens your spiritual eyes. He is the one that makes life make sense. And hear God echoing his son. And he says, it is done. Just like the first Moses delivered uh, and the second uh, Moses, Jesus delivered all of us for all times. Now God says, hey, listen, you conquered death, sin, and hell, Jesus, and now I'm stomping it in the ground. It's done once and for all. And we see throughout the rest of that chapter, we see this earthquake consistent with the seventh seal, consistent with the seventh trumpet. And now here in the seventh bowl, an earthquake. That in Revelation 6, 12 through 16, it talks about the fact that they ran for the hills, begging mountains to fall on them, trying to run and flee from the judgment of God. So are these things systematic and concurrent? It doesn't appear so. Is he retelling these events in a similar fashion, a similar yet different fashion? I think maybe. But here's the point. At some point, the mercy of Jesus runs out. And we don't know when. So three things as we close. Number one, we are living in the age of God's mercy. Today, we are living in the age of God's mercy. We've been giving this book, this narrative of God that we need to embrace holistically. This narrative of God triumphing over his enemies past, present, and future. And we are invited to let him be our victor. Whatever you're going through, you're invited to let him be your victor. And here's the beautiful thing, Romans 2, 4, Paul said it best. He says, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. The kindest thing that God does to you is confront you with your sin. That's the kindest thing he does. Because what he's saying to you is, hey, listen, this will kill you. It may end up with spiritual death, could end up in physical death. I, I love you. I am drawing you in to think in a new way about your sin. That's the mercy of God. And we're living in the age of mercy. How do I know? Because you're here today. It's not over yet. Number two, God's mercy will end at some point. That's just a fact. So we look at the mercy of God, the justice of God. Man, the two coexist and we see the justice of God in our society, but there will be a day when he will stomp out sin once and for all. And I think you'd like to be on the right side of that equation, right? And listen, this isn't a fear tactic because you showed up today already pre-deciding how you're gonna live your life. A lot of you are just checking a box say you went to church, that's cool. I don't judge you for that. But what if there's more? What if there's something more to live? What if you recognize today that it is his kindness that's trying to draw you in because his mercy's almost run out? We don't know, right? He said the end is near 2,000 years ago. So we don't know what time means. We know it means at least 2,000 years, but it could be today. We're really not promised anything. And there will be a day where his mercy is. But here's the deal. 
What if you lived a life that mattered? What if you embraced your Ephesians 2.10 calling and began to live in such a way that drew other people into the kingdom, that drew other people to Jesus? What if life wasn't all about you? (gasps) Number three, Jesus is the mercy of God. So if you wanna know what mercy looks like, just look to Jesus. He provided a way for you when there was no other way. In fact, either you died or Jesus died. And he took it, took all your pain, all your sin, all your hurt, and he took it on the cross. That's why he said in John 19, 30, it's finished, it's done. You don't have to strive anymore. Just come follow me. Drop your nets and follow me. Drop your striving. Stop trying so hard to be acceptable and just follow me. I am the mercy of God and I am trying to invite you into a better life. And not a life of of servitude, not a life of duty. The life that you were meant to live, I wanna ignite you into your calling so to where every morning when you wake up, you're like, I can't believe that I get to live this life. I can't believe that I'm seeing God do so many incredible things around me and through me. That's the life you were meant to live. You've only got one life. Which one are you waiting for? Jesus, the mercy of God, invites you into the life you were meant to live. And so Jesus, this morning, we 